From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Bob Garfield is away this week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. To read the news over the past two weeks is to get the sense that at least in the nation's most elite precincts, the party's finally over. Hollywood director James Toback now being accused by at least 38 women of sexual harassment and assault. Lockhart Steele fired from Vox Media after allegations of sexual harassment on which he admitted his New guilt. Orleans celebrity chef John Besh now accused of allowing a toxic culture in his restaurants from the kitchens to the front offices. The Wall Street Journal says that a Fidelity Investments tech fund manager has resigned. January, Bill O'Reilly struck a $32 million agreement with a longtime network analyst to settle allegations of sexual misconduct. Amazon's Roy Price also resigned today after being put on leave last week after an allegation of sexual Five harassment. Five women say Mark Halperin sexually harassed them while he was an executive at ABC News. Since the news of disgraced Miramax co-founder Harvey Weinstein's sexual predations, accusations have been lodged and apologies issued from men in Hollywood, journalism, the food industry, and yes, even the presidency. President George H.W. Bush is responding to allegations being made by an actress who is accusing him of sexual assault. And countless others. Leon Wieseltier, editor at the New Republic for three decades, accused of sexual harassment. Nickelodeon producer Chris Savino, Silicon Valley tech evangelist Robert Scoble, Ben Affleck, Ely Wiesel. Suddenly, the silence women kept to hold on to a job or advance in one is now a price too high to pay. Millions of women joining the Me Too campaign to speak out about sexual harassment and assault. The campaign began with actress Alyssa Milano, who tweeted, quote, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Suddenly, what was always dismissed as a regrettable occupational hazard is acknowledged as a crime. It certainly seems as if we're in a moment. It seems. Lynn Farley is a journalist, author, and coiner of the phrase sexual harassment. It was the mid-70s. She was teaching a field study course at Cornell on women in work and decided to hold a consciousness-raising session with her students to talk about their experiences on the job. And uh, be warned, there is some graphic language in her account. Every single one of these kids had already had an experience of having either been forced to quit a job or been fired because they had rejected the sexual overtures of a boss, a manager, or whatever. So when I left the class, I thought that we needed to have a name for what this phenomenon was. We all needed to be talking about the same thing. And so I went to my colleagues at work. I went to other women. We brainstormed. We just couldn't come up with the right phrase. I thought, well, the closest I can get is sexual harassment of women at work. Everything from phrases that reference sex to touching all the way up to forced sexual relations. It runs the whole gamut. My understanding is that it wasn't taken seriously as an occupational hazard before it had a name. That's true. Everybody dealt with it differently. Women didn't basically understand that they were all experiencing the same thing. It was something that we all talked about, but because we didn't have a name, we didn't know we were all talking about the same thing. Your work, your phrase, drew some huge attention thanks to a 1975 New York Times article called Women Begin to Speak Out Against Sexual Harassment at Work. And by the end of the 70s, you'd written a book on it called Sexual Shakedown, and that was turned into a documentary narrated by Ed Asner. Your ideas were spreading, but was right. society changing too? You started to see lawsuits. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you know, went into high gear. They came up with their own guidelines so that women could bring suits, and women did bring suits. Michael Hausfeld, a very well-known attorney, took the case of Diane Williams, a black woman who sued the Justice Department. It was a very early case. Did she win? Yes, she did. Williams versus Saxby. It was one of the landmark cases that set the direction for sexual harassment law to this day. It was embraced by corporations and businesses, the workplace hustle, the 
movie that you referenced earlier with Ed Asner. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was shown as a training film practically by every major corporation in America. You wrote last week in the New York Times op-ed that corporations have stolen the term, that they've made it bloodless? Sexual harassment has become a phrase that we don't really understand. We don't really grasp what it means to be a secretary and to have your boss walk in every morning and say, hiya tits, how they hanging today? Mm. This is what a secretary told me. This was her life. And she finally quit. And the point I'm trying to make here is we have to tell the details. People are shocked when they find out that the guy is coming in at noon and saying, okay, honey, meet me in the back room. I want a blowjob. But you see what I'm saying? That point needs to be made that we are not permitting the details, Mm. the reality of sexual harassment at the public level. And so people do not understand how serious it is. They think all these women are being frivolous. It's not frivolous. You know, if this is going to be made a condition of your employment, then the country needs to know that and not just cover it up with a polite phrase of sexual harassment. But beyond behavior like that, you have young girls, working class kids for the most part, trying to get jobs in fast food places because they have to work. And you have fast food managers systematically using sexual harassment to keep turnover high, so they don't have to unionize. They don't have to give higher wages. You could go out and write a blockbuster book about it tomorrow. It's one of the huge scandals going on in America today. So this is what you mean when you say the phrase and the concept needs to return to the ugly thing that it is, that it's been cleansed because polite society doesn't want to talk about what is an unspeakable kind of transgression. (laughs) Let's put it that way. That's right. People are saying, but we can't print that. That's one reason that you see sexual harassment being defanged. But the other reason is we have not been able in 40 years to change the basic dynamic at work that fosters sexual harassment. If we had more women managers, supervisors, bosses, this problem would slowly disappear. It's all well and good that we have all these actresses, famous names, household icons coming forward. But this whole thing about the casting couch in Hollywood, it's explosive now, but it's really old news. It's old news, but I was talking to someone who has studied the history of Hollywood for a long time, and especially Hollywood gossip, and what she observed is that through the decades, gossip rags have always been obsessed with women's sexuality, but now the gaze has moved to the abuser. So the parade of starlets, but not just starlets, they're offering precisely the details in many cases that you say we need to have an informed discussion and move forward. Do you see this as a a real change? Because she has never seen this before. Well, I think if we can stick with the stories and the truth of the stories, yes, it's a big leap forward for the issue. But nobody pays any attention to the kids at the fast food places all across the country. How does Angelina Jolie being sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein or Gretchen Carlson at Fox, how do they help these kids at McDonald's? How does that help them? Nobody cares about them. The only reason we're getting publicity now is because it's some of the major actresses in the movie industry. So everybody's, oh, 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 and all excited. And I'm not saying it's not valuable, okay? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I can look around and point to all these 15, 16-year-old girls being taught right away. The only way you're going to get ahead in this world, kitty, is if you put out, if you have sex with the boss, or you let him fill you up. Nobody gives a damn. Lynn, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Lynn Farley is the author of Sexual Shakedown, The Sexual Harassment of Women on the Job. Her upcoming book, still in progress, is The Secret World of Men, Men's Attitudes, Beliefs, Fantasies, and Desires with Regard to Women and Children. Coming up, an in-depth look 
at the death of Eric Garner and the stories we tell ourselves about it. Somebody loses his or her temper for a few seconds and somebody dies and we should all be very upset about it. In fact, what we should be mad about are the decisions made in quiet contemplation that become policies. This is On the Media. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On July 17, 2014, Eric Garner died in Staten Island at the hands of a New York City police officer, which we probably wouldn't know if it weren't for a cell phone video that captured his arrest, the chokehold, and excessive force that would kill him, and his final words. I Can't Breathe became a rallying cry for protesters, intensified after a Staten Island grand jury failed to indict the officer responsible for his death. The national media couldn't look away. A white NYPD officer not indicted in the death of... The uh, the coroner says that this is a homicide. End of story. The Justice Department has announced a federal investigation into the Garner case now that this grand jury decision has come down. Until they did look away. Matt Taibbi is a journalist and author of the new book, I Can't Breathe, A Killing on Bay Street, an exploration of Eric Garner's life and death in the media and in his real life. Eric Garner was a complex, funny, contradictory, flawed person, a guy who got behind the eight ball a little bit early in life, married when he was still in his teens and his wife had children already. He started down a road of dealing drugs before he really figured life out and things kind of happened to him. How old was he? He was 43 at the time. He had diabetes. He worked selling cigarettes out in the streets eight, nine, ten hours a day, rain or shine, on his feet all day long. One of his dreams was to be able to sit down at work. He, he had a dream about a stool. And, and, you know, that was just something that wasn't available to him. It's details like that that made me feel for the guy without having ever met him. So you have the individual, very complicated. You have his symbolic importance. That's not all that complicated at all. Depending on which side you are, you know exactly how you feel. And you concede in the book that as these violent encounters play out, both sides are cast in familiar roles. Right. One of the things that happens almost right away is that talking points develop that excuse whatever happened. Eric Garner was menacing, right? Michael Brown the police officer involved talked about how it was like trying to wrestle Hulk Hogan. Even in a case like the death of Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old boy in, in Cleveland who got shot because he was waving around a toy gun, just like Emmett Till a million years ago, you would hear descriptions that he was big for his age, mm-hmm. right? So the police are often depicted as these sort of helpless weaklings who are struggling against these superhuman creatures. The other talking point that's very common and came into play with the Garner case is the idea of, why didn't he just go? Police asked him to get in the car. He didn't get in the car. He said no. What else were they supposed to do? Well, you could argue that one a couple of different ways. One thing you can't call it in this case is resisting arrest, because I think resisting arrest requires an actual valid arrest. You point out in the book, a familiar charge in many of these cases is interfering with the administration of government business. If you go and sit in any municipal courtroom here in New York City, you'll pretty quickly hear people arraigned for something that they call OGA, which is obstructing government administration. Sometimes it'll be obstructing pedestrian traffic or refusal to obey a lawful order of the police 
All of these fall under the general rubric of disorderly conduct. Years ago, I covered a case involving a guy who was arrested for obstructing pedestrian traffic while standing in front of his own home. He, he lived in a project tower in Bed-Stuy in the middle of the night. There's nobody else for miles around. There's nobody on the street, but he gets arrested for this charge. We know how rare it is for the police officers who killed a person to be convicted of that crime. And you say that a lot of this has to do with something that you call the brutality scandal playbook. Garner's family and their lawyers found they couldn't get even the most basic information, and this is part of the playbook. Yeah, exactly. When the press tried to find out whether or not Daniel Pantaleo had abuse incidents in his past... That's the police officer who used the chokehold. Exactly. What they found out is that you're not entitled to that information. Somebody from the CCRB, the Civilian Complaint Review Board, leaked to the local media that he did have a history of abuse complaints. But for that leak, we wouldn't know because you can't get it by filing a Freedom of Information request. You can't typically get it by suing... There is a loophole in the civil rights statute, Section 50A, which says that any information that can be used to evaluate the performance of a police officer must be kept confidential. Which leads me to another meme, Mm -hmm. the sense that putting that information out there is dangerous to the public. And it was put this way by uh, the New York Police Union Chief Pat Lynch. Here's what he said after two police officers were killed in December of 2014, the same year Garner was killed. There's blood on many hands tonight. Those that incited violence on the street under the guise of protest that tried to tear down what New York City police officers did every day. It must not go on. It cannot be tolerated. That blood on the hands starts on the steps of City Hall in the office of the mayor. They blame everyone from Barack Obama to Al Sharpton to Bill de Blasio for creating this sort of general atmosphere of disrespect towards police officers that leads, in their mind, to people not obeying when cops tell them to do things. And that is the reason why these incidents happen. It's not the fault of the police officers. It's the people who created this atmosphere of disrespect who are to blame. There's a certain paradox here. Among many who view these events, Mm. the bad cop is the villain. You wrote that Eric Garner was murdered by history, involved in something much bigger than himself. And you make a similar case for the police in the story. They, too, are operating against a backdrop that we need to understand and we don't see. Right. The way they describe it in the news, somebody loses his or her temper for a few seconds and somebody dies, and we should all be very upset about it. In fact, what we should be mad about are the decisions made in quiet contemplation over periods of weeks and months and years that become policies. What policies? The worst example is, you know, the broken windows policing theories, which are based on the idea that if you target minor behavior, if you stop people from jumping turnstiles or riding bicycles the wrong way down the sidewalk or drinking out of open containers on the street, if you target that behavior, then eventually serious crime will also drop. And so in this city anyway, they used to stop 500, 600, 700,000 people a year. Principally black and Hispanic. Almost entirely black and Hispanic in a city that's more than half white. And look, if you do this often enough, you don't have time to wait for probable cause to see somebody do something wrong. You have to get to a place psychologically where you believe the people you're stopping are guilty before you stop them. And so most of the time, Mm -hmm. they would end up checking a box that led to something legally meaningless, like a furtive movement or a bulge in a pocket or something like that. Or we saw the person dropping the drugs as they were (laughs) fleeing. You learn after years in the force that there are all these tricks that you should employ that make the arrest okay. And it's these smallish lies that are stuck through the justice system all over. It's like a disease and a rot, and it's hard to explain to people. They don't see what the big deal is. Okay, the guy had drugs, so who cares? But what do we have laws for if they're not to be followed? And if you get stopped often enough, frequently for nothing, 
eventually you get mad and somebody says a crossword and then one of these incidents happens. So statistically speaking, if you're going to stop 700,000 more people than you were before, a few of those people are going to die. Some of them might even be police officers. It's a system that encourages and creates a whole universe of contacts between the population and the police that are fraught from the start. That's the problem that we have to be focusing on. Let's talk about fatigue. Everyone in your book, the protesters, the lawyers, the friends and families of Garner, the public, all experienced fatigue at some point during the story. Outrage fatigue, sadness fatigue, legal fatigue. I think it plays an enormous role. The character that I start the book with is a guy named Ibrahim Anan who was attacked by police. He was in his car. The police charged him with marijuana possession, and he had his leg smashed in three places. But because of the way the system is set up, you have to be cleared of all of your own criminal charges before you can file a federal criminal lawsuit. And that process just of getting out of all the charges that they filed against him. Which were not based on anything. He was acquitted of all of them, ultimately. Let's Mm -hmm. put it that way. That process took two and a half years. And that's only the start of the process of suing the police for this whole incident. So in order to get any kind of remuneration for this, you have to be prepared in some cases for a four, five, six-year ordeal. And that's just to get a decent settlement. Right, Actual exactly. justice seems almost always beyond reach. Right. I asked Al Sharpton about this in the book. And even Sharpton said, look, obviously always the goal is permanent structural change, but sometimes that's not there. So if you can't hit a home run, get on base. That's a difficult philosophical question. Is it okay to just sell for the money if that's all there is to get in, in the American justice system? In the epilogue, referring to Garner, you talk about the lengths that we went to as a society to crush someone of such modest ambitions. What are we, you, me, anybody listening, how are we responsible? I think to a lot of upscale white urban voters, there's this trade-off where they voted for politicians who were socially liberal, like Mike Bloomberg, who is you know in favor of gay marriage, but was tough on crime, right? Mm-hmm. And didn't really want to know or didn't want to investigate what was underneath phrases like that. Mm-hmm. And what was underneath phrases like that really was the institution of police tactics that were designed to keep black and Hispanic males from going into rich white neighborhoods. You suggest in the book that Garner was targeted because he was slovenly and unkempt, so the cops were directed simply to get him out. Yeah, I talked to a drug dealer who worked that part of Staten Island, Tompkinsville Park area. He said, when I first got here, I I would go six months without seeing a police officer. But you can point across the street now and you can see that there are these high-rise condominium developments that are coming up. Ever since those towers went up, suddenly all these really, really minor transactions are being policed very, very heavily. And I asked people, would Eric Garner be alive today if not for those condominium towers? Most of the people said yes. So ultimately, this is a story about segregation. It's, a, it's about how people in big cities still aren't ready to really live together. And the police are essentially making that segregation possible by using these policies. You wrote that in order for patterns to repeat themselves, people first have to forget. And that, quote, like prisoners of ourselves, we seemed doomed to repeat patterns over and over. How do we escape? How do we move forward? We have to know the history. I mean, ever since the Civil War, we've had laws in place that have allowed police to arrest black people who have wandered out of their neighborhoods who have gone to the wrong places. They were called vagrancy laws once. You could be arrested for things like impudence. Interfering with government administration. It's exactly the same thing. If you go to black neighborhoods, they'll say this isn't anything new. In a lot of these communities, ideas like broken windows never had a chance to be taken seriously except as the latest con forced on them by a system that was stacked against them. And that's because of the history we are mostly ignorant of. And so I think we do need to know that history. Matt, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Matt Taibbi is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone and author of the new book on the life and death of Eric Garner called I Can't Breathe, A Killing on Bay Street. Speaking of history, Matt, one last question. It's something that's come up a number of years ago. You were involved in some controversy regarding pretty wine scenish behavior. What you're referring to is a chapter in a book that I co-wrote with a, a guy named Mark Ames that was about a newspaper that I had in Russia called The Exile. And what I can say is that the behavior that's described in a chapter that was written by Mark was like a lot of things in The Exile, uh, not based on fact. None of that is true. I have never in Russia or the United States ever used sexually suggestive comments or made advances to any employee in any office here or abroad. The exile was satirical. It was designed to get a rise out of people trying to be offensive. We were young and dumb. I was 27 years old. There was content that was sophomoric and offensive, and uh, there are things that I may have thought were appropriate back then that I clearly do not now in the 15 to 20 years that I've been back in the States. But basically, um, the chapter that's causing the controversy was BS. Yeah. Well, like a lot of things that we wrote and a lot of things that Mark wrote, you know, the, the exile, a lot of it was fictional. I apologize to my readers for you know my insensitivity and poor judgment. At, and How long I, ago was that? That was 1997. The, 20 years ago. Yeah, it was 20 years ago. But I, I, I can't stress enough that although there were a lot of things in the exile that I do have regrets about, you know, I, I never actually did those behaviors. Okay, thanks. All right, thank you. Coming up, the partial release of JFK assassination documents. No matter. We still won't believe them. Americans who saw the Zapruder film were then prepared to believe explanations that said if there was a gunman who shot from the front, that meant there was a conspiracy. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm, and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad. I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Here, the scene is a wild pandemonium as 2,000 guests waited anxiously for President Kennedy, Governor Connolly, and the Vice President. Now, rumors run rampant. No one here knows what has happened, but the rumors continue to circulate that the President and Governor Connolly both have been shot. Fifty years on, the rumors reverberate. On Thursday, the National Archives was set to release the last trove of some 3,000 documents about the murder of JFK. But President Trump held hundreds back for national security review over the next six months. Reportedly, CIA Director Mike Pompeo pushed for the delay. It's just the latest chapter in the mystery of why Lee Harvey Oswald did what he did and whether he did it alone. 
An early chapter was penned just a year after the shooting, publication of the findings of a presidential commission known as the Warren Report. There was no evidence found by the commission that uh, proved a conspiracy either foreign or domestic. Oswald acted alone based on what evidence we found. The commission's methods were flawed, hence the enduring effort of determined investigators, amateurs, and cranks to fill in the blanks, to generate conspiracy theories, and to quash them. The documents set for release this week had represented that last 1% of the government's record. Might those have settled the issue for those who've spent decades focused on the facets of the murder, from the grassy knoll to the magic bullet to Cuba? Nah, not just because some documents are still being withheld, but because it's unlikely anything can ever lay to rest the suspicions surrounding that day in November 1963. Among those long captivated by the case is the journalist, essayist, and author Ron Rosenbaum. I actually attended a lecture by a notorious Warren Commission critic, Mark Lane, the summer after my high school graduation. He was the granddaddy of uh, JFK assassination conspiracy Uh, theorists. I would say the extreme wing, you know, and he uh, did this kind of PowerPoint slideshow with arrows pointing many directions, trying to show that the pictures of Oswald were early photoshops. Now, the question is, if the bullet hit the president in the back of the neck and ripped through his Adam's apple, how was it possible for him to say clearly and distinctly in that New England accent, my God, I am hit? Lane pointed out genuine flaws and absences in the Warren Commission. However, he soon jumped to conclusions that it was the military-industrial complex, it was right-wing oil millionaires. There were so many people uh, wanting to kill Kennedy, there might have been a traffic jam at (laughs) Dealey Plaza. I think everyone agrees that the Warren Report was deeply flawed at this point. The members of the commission, who included the head of the CIA, were trying to cover up the intelligence agency's involvement and, of course, the spectacular, sensational news that the U.S. president had plotted assassinations of Castro and other people in the Caribbean. Or, as LBJ said, the Kennedys were running a goddamn murder incorporated in the Caribbean. As it turned out, many of the critics, the crazies and the serious ones, were vindicated when the U.S. Senate Church Committee revealed in testimony from CIA people how they had plotted assassinations and how Oswald might have known it. Just quickly, you mentioned the Church Committee, which was convened after Watergate, and it explored a history of abuse by intelligence agencies, both domestic and foreign. The Church Committee revealed all this and ripped off an entire cover of a seamy side of American undercover policy that involved murder. This is really important because I also want to examine the appeal of conspiracy theories in general and the particular appeal of this one. And I think it has a lot to do with timing. Well, even before the church Mm -hmm. committee... It was an extremely momentous event that I believe is at least as responsible for the kind of PTSD that conspiracy theory represents. Mm -hmm. And that was the revelation on a television network of the Zapruder film that showed Kennedy being shot. Seeing the president of the United States slaughtered, seeing the blood fly out, from him. And you can watch it on YouTube now. We're talking, what, a dozen years after the assassination? It was about 1975, Zapruder film was first broadcast. Is that when this conspiracy really took off, was in the mid-70s? I think the number of Americans who saw the Zapruder film were then prepared to believe explanations that said there was a gunman who shot from the front when Oswald was in back. Oswald may have shot as well, but if there was a gunman who shot from the front, that meant there was a conspiracy. 
Then the church committee revealed to us that the U.S. was planning to assassinate Castro. That, long before Oliver Stone's movie, prepared people. And then once it got on YouTube, the Zapruder film, everyone in America saw their president shot, his blood flying out of the limousine. It's something you don't get over easily. It's something that leaves you with the feeling, I don't want to leave this unsolved. My world is shaken if I don't think, even if it's an evil conspiracy, there was a conspiracy. We know the answer. You mentioned the uh, 1991 Oliver Stone movie. Let's talk about how cinema can shape memory. You recalled how a few years back, a young panelist on Chris Matthews' Hardball said that her first memory of the assassination was the magic bullet theory explained by Kevin Costner in the Stone film, JFK. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck, where it waits 1.6 seconds, presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left. If you don't believe this magic bullet could have done that, then you have to believe there was another shot and perhaps another gunman. Can't an effective movie scene imprint a false memory on top of actual history and distort it forever in the public imagination? Yes, I agree that's happened and that uh, all too many people believe the foolish extrapolations in Oliver Stone's film. I don't think they should be taken seriously that some uh, military-industrial complex Mr. X told Jim Garrison, Kevin Costner, we did it. But on the other hand, Oliver Stone's film, one can't deny, was responsible for the JFK Records Act. Yeah, this is so interesting. The JFK Assassination Records Collection Act, which was passed a year after the film, enables countless documents to be released this week. It crystallized a lot of underlying doubt. And by then, members of both houses of Congress were doubtful enough about the official story that they thought it was important, transparency rather than secrecy. In 2007, in a piece for Slate, you wrote, you could make the case that JFK conspiracy theory culture has, in its own way, been responsible for changing the landscape of the American mind. Well, look at how many people believe that real news is fake news. I think JFK conspiracy culture has done its part to destabilize the belief that there is such a thing as genuine truth. 9-11 truthers, birthers, People who, without evidence, will just assert something or deny something. Holocaust deniers. We no longer live in a world in which it's possible, even with a mountain of evidence, to convince some people that the news is not fake. So what do you hope this new release may shed light on? I'm fairly pessimistic that there's going to be any genuine smoking gun I do feel they may fill out the picture of one aspect of the assassination hidden for a long time, which is the dalliance of the CIA and other intelligence agencies with Oswald. They may have known more about him, about his motives. They may have even run him as an agent for all we know and his connection to other, perhaps, fidelistas in Mexico City is an important, not widely explored aspect of the case. It's not an entirely closed case, but one can hope that incrementally we're approaching something closer to the truth. In 1983, you wrote a piece called Oswald's Ghost, in which you follow some of these conspiracy theorists, or buff buffs, as you called them, and you wrote, 
It is then that I realize that these people are not buffs. They are mourners. Their investigation of the assassination is their way of mourning, a continuation of his last rites that they can't abandon. Unlike the rest of us, they haven't stopped grieving. I'm glad you uh, singled that out. I was speaking then of a group of people around a guy named Penn Joan Jr. who thought there were about 24 gunmen. He had a newsletter recording the deaths of every single person remotely connected to the assassination, like the hairdresser for one of Oswald's stripper friends. And he titled it Forgive My Grief, and I asked him where he got that title, and he said it was from a Tennyson poem, which he recited to me. And it suddenly made sense to me that in some way conspiracy theory is a metaform of grieving. Do you think then that that's why we still care so much after all these years and that it may take another generation for us to get over it? I don't know if we'll ever get over it. If you see that film of Kennedy's head being blown off. Uh, that is the fourth time you've <laughs> described it. Well, I'm sorry. It's perhaps the most dramatic, sensational media moment in the case. And I think that it might well have an ever-renewing interest in this social media age in which all such things are seen by everybody. Mm -hmm. I just wonder if it endures, the power of repetition will turn it from an iconic image to a meme to wallpaper. You've got me there. I have no comment on that. <laughs> Ron, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Ron Rosenbaum is the author of, among other things, Explaining Hitler, The Search for the Origins of His Evil. His excellent essay, Oswald's Ghost, about following JFK conspiracy buffs, can be found in The Secret Parts of Fortune, Three Decades of Intense Investigations and Edgy Enthusiasms. The day President Kennedy died, TV was still relatively young. Going live was extremely cumbersome, costly, and rare. But that day, that historic enormity made live coverage essential, no matter the cost, whenever a president left the White House. In a 2003 piece, WNYC's Sarah Fishko recalls those days. Ladies and gentlemen. Conductor Eric Leinsdorf, Symphony Hall, Boston, November 22, 1963. We have a press report over the wires that the president of the United States has been the victim of an assassination. <laughs> if you were alive and over, say, five years old in November 1963, wherever you were, you remember it. We will play the funeral march from Beethoven's Third Symphony. The nation heard the news over wire services, radio, by word of mouth, public announcement, and most dramatically, on television. Television took over our lives for what are sometimes called those four dark days in Dallas, the Friday of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy and the Saturday, Sunday, and Monday that followed. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. Radio was there and wire services and newspapers, but it took television exactly 10 minutes after shots were fired to go on the air that day. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade. That began four days of on-air improvisation, television's first continuous coverage of a prolonged, painful breaking news story. It was impossible to tell at once where Kennedy was hit, but bullet wounds in Governor Conley's chest... There hadn't been an assassination of, the, of a president since uh, McKinley at the turn of the century. Thomas Doherty is professor of film studies at Brandeis University and has written about the TV coverage of the Kennedy assassination. So even without television, this would have been uh, uniquely disorienting and shocking. 
With television, though, it becomes this indelible memory for an entire generation that uh, with TV, we can actually experience the news and watch it as it's unfolding in the same existential moment that uh, the news is happening. The information that we have, this is no time, obviously, for speculation. Remarkably, it had been earlier that very fall, September 1963, that CBS had expanded its nightly newscast to a half hour from its previous program of only 15 minutes a night. NBC followed soon after. Newscasts expanded because they had to. Reuven Frank was producer of the Huntley-Brinkley Report in the 50s and 60s and went on to be president of NBC News. You know, we had been agitating for a half hour for a long time. With Kennedy, the television president, they thought maybe it had a shot. And it did. And then that day in Dallas came, in quite a different technological era. A telephone call that's from NBC's Robert McNeil, who was with the president's party. There was a little waiting room with swing doors, and I looked inside, and there were two payphones that were empty. Former anchor and now author Robert McNeil was in Dallas covering the Kennedy motorcade for NBC. And I grabbed one of them, and I kept it for the rest of the afternoon. Bob, are you there? This is Frank McGee, Bob. When I phoned from that payphone in Dallas, uh, they couldn't, couldn't connect me through to air. And I would say a sentence, and McGee would repeat it. The president is seriously wounded. Which was fine for me, because it slowed me down. The shot which wounded the president occurred as the motorcade. In 63, was running through huge crowds in we were still to the point where a camera weighed, I don't know, 100 and something pounds. And a mobile unit was the size of a Santini Brothers truck. Reuven Frank. Our remote truck in Dallas broke down, not the television part of it, but the truck part of it, the engine. So NBC for much of that weekend was represented by a remote truck, this big, enormous thing, being towed around by a tow truck. Obstacles to be sure. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. But by the time the awful truth was known, the networks had resolved to broadcast continuously and remove commercials for the duration. It was an instinctive reaction, I think. It was spontaneous and instinctive, and for the first time. We knew that you couldn't have commercials. Some people on the money side started to agitate for going back to commercials, and we just threw them out of the office. By the end of that first day, America was exhausted and transfixed. Six o'clock, November 22nd. Thomas Doherty. The cameras are there to record the coffin being uh, you know, taken off the plane and loaded into a hearse, and you see this image of uh, Jackie Kennedy. Uh, you know, her dress and the, the stockings uh, she's wearing are you know, stained with blood, and she's, of course, looking utterly shattered. And it seems almost this you know, a voyeuristic intrusion into this you know, very private moment. The sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bear. By Saturday, a parade of dignitaries was filing by the body lying in state. There were more details about a suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald, and reporters were struggling with the reality of a new president. Vice President Johnson, President Johnson, I'm sure that many of us have made that mistake and will repeat it. Repeat it Nothing could have prepared TV or its viewers for Sunday. A lot of folks would say that it is the Sunday event that is truly the one that unhinges America ever after, and that it, you know, this is really when the 60s uh, began. It was Sunday morning. Reuven Frank. And the president of NBC was watching at home, along with half the country, and he was getting bored with what we were covering, and he said, switch to something live, he said. And the only thing we had live was Tom Pettit. Nobody really thought it was worth covering. NBC reporter Pettit was following the prisoner, Oswald, as he was moved from jail to jail. They switched, and there it was. There is Lee Oswald. He's been shot. He's been shot. CBS had had its cameras running, but they had switched to an essay at the time. They insisted finishing the essay rather than coming to us live. Dan Rather was in Dallas covering the Texas trip for CBS. At a time when I was first asking, then calling, then screaming, come to us live. But decisions get made. At the time, to say I was disappointed would be a fast understatement. Firecracker rang out. He grabbed his side and he said, "Ow!" Nielsen ratings have never even approached ever again. Uh, you know the, the, the kind of you know, stratosphere that they had uh, on on that day. Literally, ninety-three percent of the American public was by a television, you know, watching on on Sunday. Monday, the funeral. You didn't need 
to have people nattering on about nothing and just bloviating to hold the airspace. There was enough inherent drama in millions of people weeping over their television sets. What did television learn from November 1963? From then on, the presidency, it, it just took over the news. If I, by the way, I don't think this is peculiar to television. I think all news media. The White House Bureau's coverage expanded exponentially. A lot of people felt they had missed the biggest story of their lives. And from then on, nothing the president did or does is not covered. Dan Rather. I think I know before Dallas, I had no idea of the power of television to move people. It's a shared national experience. I didn't feel my own feelings until the day of the funeral. Robert McNeil. We were filming, and um, a man came and sat down and put a transistor radio down, and it happened to be tuned to the funeral in Washington at the moment when the Black Watch bagpipe band passed. And suddenly, all my defenses and everything just dissolved, and there I was sobbing, tears running down my face. There it was. And suddenly it just all poured out. Television, and all of us, grew up those four days among those images. It was a crisis more fully appreciated by watching than by learning about. That's what television could and can do. Jackie Kennedy knew it, even that night in her bloody skirt. She'd been asked by many why she'd chosen not to change clothes. No, she said, let them see what they've done. For On the Media, I'm Sarah Fishko. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Jesse Brenneman, Micah Lowinger, and Leah Feder. We had more help from Monique Laborde. Special thanks to Andy Lancet of WNYC's archives team. Our show was edited by me. Our technical directors, Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Terrence Bernardo. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Bob Garfield will be back next week. I'm Brooke Gladstone. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.